Hello and welcome back to another video on this channel. Today I am joined by my good friend Warren Jew. We are indeed starting a new series called Asians Test How Deep They Can Go, which essentially has a premise to discuss different philosophical issues, penetrating these topics very deeply to hopefully understand more about our philosophy and about our community. Warren Jew, how are you today? Okay, thank you. I'm feeling a bit tired, but, but the penetration did get me there. Indeed. I think I think you are going to be tired. But today, as you've said, and as we've kind of dis discussed, we are going to be talking about social activism and human rights, something which has been in your in your mind of late. And it's something that I thought it was quite interesting thing to discuss because it is definitely a very interesting question. We all live as if these rights exist or as if these concepts kind of have some deontic power above us. But at the same time, we sometimes don't exactly know what they are, or how we interact with them. So perhaps the easiest way to start off with is, well, what exactly do you think are human rights? What is this human rights idea that you're kind of critiquing, perhaps? Okay, I, I thought you were going to ask some, something else, but okay, let, let's start with human rights, it's fine. Uh, I think human, well, if we're to talk about human rights, we have to first talk about duties, because what, what, what is one's right? is exactly other people's duty towards oneself. I think that's the best way to look at rights. Well, one would go into almost obscure territory of saying there are divine given rights of human beings and even the territories of saying, well, there are certain essences inside human beings that I cannot be violated by others because that is who I am and that is my rights. And I think it, it is not very healthy to talk about those or very difficult to argue in terms of rights without considering its opposite side, considering duties. And I think that may be a more fruitful way of going about uh, this human right business. And that's part of the reason that I'm dissatisfied about current human rights discourse, because you don't have this, this talk about duties, but only about my rights, my rights, less than my duty towards others, my duties towards protecting your rights. Because without everyone's duties towards other people, then no rights can can happen. And it's very interesting when you talk about deontic powers. This is what uh, John Stroh developed. He said that uh, it is a feature of language and it's a special feature of language that we're able to create institutions using, using, using linguistic facts. And this is things like declarations. For example, when I say, uh, say I promise you, Josh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to come up to your chat, come onto your channel at four o'clock today. What I'm doing is not that I'm I'm using language to point to something inside the world and directly representing it, but I am creating the thing, the promise that I am representing through me, me myself making this promise. And for John Stroh, he thinks that it is these things, these declarations through language that creates uh, linguistic and institutional facts, and therefore uh, actually. Not, not institutional facts, that creates deontic powers. For example, when I say, I promise you, Josh, I'm going to come on to this channel, there's a deontic power in the sense that deon just means duty. I have a duty to come to your, um, to your channel because I have made this promise. And it's all of these, these duties that leads to rights, I think. And this is also what we say when we say that like universal human rights is a very slippery category compared to rights of citizens rights of oneself perhaps inside a smaller community because inside a smaller community one can envision that there's an institution created by all of these linguistic facts 
and binding together. And it, within this institution, one can say that each of the persons within belonging to this institution can have different deontic powers. Uh, it's, it's obligated to do the different things, have certain duties towards each other by virtue of being inside these institutions. But when we talk about universal human rights, it gets very slippery since it's difficult to imagine that's in, that there's a, let's say, a universal institution that's beyond every single, like nation states or even, uh, even UN that guarantees these rights. And the only way perhaps to do it is to say that uh, it's, it's based on religion. There's a certain uh, city of God beyond the city of man that can guarantee one's rights. But then what happens is a lot of people who believe in universal human rights don't believe in this idea of the city of God. And I personally, I don't really believe in it either. I believe in it metaphorically, but that's another discussion. And coming back, coming back to the main discussion of human rights, what happens is then the, the whole discussion becomes very muddled and it's just, it's just difficult to talk about. Uh, they, the people who talk about human rights don't know what they themselves are talking about. They're not thinking straight, they're not thinking clearly. And it just, it's, it's a very messy issue. It's very annoying to deal with. That's partly why before I, when you asked me to talk about human rights, I didn't want to talk about it because it's something that annoys me, but something I find tedious and boring at the same time because it annoys me so much. And this is precisely why I decided to ask you this question, because I think it's precisely the tedious and the boring nature of such discussions which bring forth a need to cover them just in case they do indeed arise and you don't know what the hell to say about it. But I'd like to push you a bit further on this. And it's not necessarily a disagreement, but rather a observation of what you say it, it does seem to appear that by defining rights as it's somewhat if, if inverse is the right way by defining rights as inverse the responsibilities it does seem to suggest that the the human rights can only be predicated upon upon the existence of the other or at least the existence of someone else around you and that it is only within a society in which human rights can be established and that an individual within themselves do not have um, do not have any intrinsic rights or human rights within themselves. Would you agree with this characterization then? I think it's this. There's, I believe, a certain way that one can ground human rights that's outside of other people's duties towards a single person. And I think it is based on uh, human dignity. I guess that's the only, only way I think one can go about it. It's a human dignity of oneself, one's need to be treated as ends rather than means, to use Kantian language, of what, what Christians would call the human soul. And that's part of the argument of saying, of abortion that Anscombe gave, that when you're aborting a fetus, what you're doing is you're treating the fetus as a means rather than an end, as a means for your own benefit, as something that can just be disposed rather than some something or some person. This is a thorny issue, I know, that uh, has to be, treated with dignity and respect. And in the same way, I think one by oneself, in some sense, can can have rights in the sense that one, by virtue of being human, is worthy of being respected and has dignity. I guess that, that's one side of the issue. But another side, I think you pointed to a very important issue of this human rights, rights is defined against other people. And I think this is also why it bothers me so much, this a constant focus on human rights, because what happens is it's, it's almost a constant fear of the other 
constant fear of other people. That's what uh, some philosophers call an immunological model of the self. I'm saying I'm I'm a single person, and I I need to repel other people. I don't want other people to interfere with me, and I'm sort of this atom, and I'm completely free, and I'm at my my best state when no one else is interfering with me, and I can do whatever I want. And I think this is what. This is the underlying philosophy or the underlying metaphysical presuppositions that fuel this one-sided discussion of human rights without emphasizing my duties with others. So what happens is I only emphasize this half half of the equation, the half of saying, well, other, people's may be other people may be dangerous. Therefore, I should, I should push them out. I don't want them to interfere with my business without thinking about my duties with other people. M me, by virtue of being inside a community, uh, having different relations with others. This this other side of the equation is ignored by human rights. And I think that's also why it, it sort of troubles me so much. And I, I think I talked to you about how I, I was reading through the Universal Declaration of Human Rights the other day. And there's the, the constant uh, constant phrase of saying respect for other people's rights. Well, this exactly is the logic of this atomizing of individuals inside the discourse of human rights in a sense that what does it mean to respect your rights? It means I don't want to interfere with your business. It means I don't care about you. I, I just want you to leave, you leave me alone and I leave you alone. In some sense, that's that's a good thing to do, but by constantly focusing on rights, it ignores the other side, the duties. Therefore, respect is not what I do to, uh, to my sister. I don't say, uh, Maggie, my sister, I, I will respect your rights. Therefore, I won't do this instead. To love another person is exactly to, in some ways, sort of cross certain boundaries in terms of their rights because you want the best for them. This you shouldn't do to every single person, but by focusing on rights, it devoids one of the, the best relationships one can have with others in, in terms of duty. And that's why it sort of annoys me again. And at this point, it seems that we still seem to have a dialectic or a uh, opposition between two of the ideas, the first view of the rights as individuals, something as the human dignity, seemingly something within the human themselves which is respected, and and the rights qua um, society in some sense of you have to, it, it's in some sense atomizes the person in 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 perspective of the entire society. But what it seems very interesting here is that it seems that by definition, or at least the usage of human rights as a concept itself in our world is precisely something as something which is purely individual in the sense that the duty of, of rights lies purely on the other and not the self. And in some sense, it devoids, as you say, the responsibility from oneself of their own rights to their own rights in some sense. For, for in order for me to, for example, claim a right to life, or at least in the discourse of rights, it does seem that that right to life comes first before any prior action. Now, this seems to be a principle that everyone in society holds to, or at least accepts. But at the same time, you have the similar counter-argument of, of perhaps human rights as re responsibility. But where exactly do you think that deontic power comes from? This kind of this shift from the individual dignity, intrinsic dignity, or whatever you want to call it as, to this kind of responsibility on the other, without it necessarily being responsibility of the self. Well, Josh, I think you, you hit the nail on the head because I, it, you clarified a point that I will get to, which I didn't realize before of why this rights uh, really annoys me. Well, let's, let's first get to uh, the first point about rights as only as primary and focused 
focus on just my atomize the atomizing aspect of the rights and rather than my responsibilities to other people and me gaining the rights it's just me having the rights first and then you should you should do things for me i think you're, you're right it's a it's it's a it's a very fraudulent conception of what rights is exactly because you said where does deontic power come from deontic power comes from me being inside a society me being inside an institution or even with uh sort of the popular 60s uh saying of me being inside an entire like human brotherhood in the same way these these are all institutions and it is me within these institutions that i have certain rights and what, what happens is if one only focuses on the rights then one does not realize that by being inside these institutions, it is true that I have rights. But in the same way, just as I have rights, I always, I also have duties towards other people. And it is this relations, it is this constant network of relations that I am so, sort of locked inside by being inside an institution that pro provides me with the, these rights, but also gives me certain obligations, certain duties that I have to follow. And I think this is what Khan talked about. And that's the point that I alluded to earlier that you helped me clarify. When, when he said that what, more, the aim of morality is not happiness. And here he's critiquing sort of the utilitarians, which you know, I really, <laughs> I really dislike. And what he said was that morality is aim is not for happiness, but rather morality to be moral, to strive to be moral, is to be worthy of happiness. And that, that's the ultimate aim of morality. And in the same way, I think the, the aim of being, one, one does having rights is just like being happy. It is good, it is fine, but one has not earned it. It is through this duty towards others and observing of one's duty towards others inside an institution that one, gains the right to one's rights, as you said so elegantly before. Now, at this point, it does seem to suggest that this deontic power, if anything, has to, by definition, be something metaphysical. It can't be grounded physically. And I think that this is what perhaps American Constitution does so well, is precisely identifying that metaphysical a concept in their amendment by saying these rights are given by God, and that is precisely their grounding point of their rights. So do you think that in some sense, the usage of rights in popular dialogue is in some sense predicated on our current theistic or a Judeo-Christian upbringing and that the moment you derive or get rid of this kind of Judeo-Christian or this, not even Judeo-Christian, but this theistic upbringing or this metaphysical grounding, your, your entire structure of human rights becomes corrupted and would um, shatter? Well, I think I would disagree with you here, Josh. Uh, in that, I don't think, when we say it's metaphysical, the, the rights is a metaphysical concept. I think it's true in the sense that it is more than just physicality. We don't, we don't observe rights like in the physical world. I don't see sort of this blob in, I don't know, the top left of my brain when, when I close my eyes, where it's like, this is where my rights are. This is where my rights are located. And this is the same as what Hume said when he said, uh, I can't find any self. When I look into myself, I just see uh, different thoughts without seeing this precise point, this thing that I can call the self. But And this, one can say that the self and rights are both metaphysical concepts. 
However, I wouldn't say that one necessarily needs God in order to ground these rights. And that's, as I alluded to earlier, I talked about how one can create institutions using language. And I think it's more this linguistic capacity that creates rights. And of course, you can say that our belief in language or our faith in language comes to, to a certain extent from certain religious traditions, the Judeo-Christian heritage, and is also emphasized in Taoism, uh, when you have the word as its primary thing. But to, to put that aside, I think it's more about language than necessarily about God, even though there is a certain sense in which if one is trying to move, if one wishes to move from rights of certain institutions to a universal human right, regardless of your, your, your belonging to any community or to any institution, then one needs a further concept, which can be grounded, as you said, in, in, in God. But I think it can also be grounded in a particular conception of human nature of what a human is or should be. And perhaps you can say that it is in order to conjure up a, an idea of what a human being should be, one, one really has to rely on the divine more or less. And we can have an argument about that. But what my, I guess my answer towards you provisionally would be that That we, we don't necessarily need a God to ground these rights, although sometimes having a God would be very helpful to, to do so. I think that you raise a very interesting point, this idea of linguistics, but it does seem to suggest, or at least in our common sense uses of the idea of human rights, at least in modern discourse, is precisely this latter type universal human rights instead of institutional societal human rights. Because I think that immediately what we see, and this is especially seen in the left, is that, well, if we if we look at it as purely as an institutional kind of linguistic human rights section, it, it can be very polarizing and can indeed lead to things like slavery, because I don't necessarily see if we define rights by its linguistical usage under a certain society, that slavery or the abuse of certain, what we currently call human right abuses, would not be wrong under a, a certain kind of institution where slavery is a common term a lingo or a linguistical feature of that society. So I think that what it does seem to suggest is that when we're talking about human rights, at least from a linguistic perspective, it fa falls under the latter perspective of that kind of universal human rights instead of the former as an institution. Because although, yes, you can define that as human rights, that is quite, I would say, a limited scope, which is perhaps not accepted as human rights today. Well, I would say this. I think you, you, you again hit on a very important point that I think this is another point where you, the idea of universal human rights bothers me because what happens is if you say that everyone has these rights, then people who should not be given these rights or people who are not given these rights are not human if everyone has these rights. And the, the point of the, the slave is a point on, on this case in the sense that I just read actually today that what happens to slaves in, in ancient societies is that they're, they're treated as dead. They don't belong to the society at all. They're what I guess Agamben would call homo sacer, someone who's outside of the entire institution and structure. And this is what slavery is about. It's not that people accepted slavery and accepted this abuse of other people, but instead 
people accepted that slaves are just dead and they in some sense treated as non-existence non-existent and that's why they can be treated as slaves and in the same sense if we are to set up an idea of universal human rights i think a, a similar danger would happen where people who are not given these rights would or be treated as inhumane this is also what hannah arndt's argument against a sort of a world argument, uh, world government. What happens is, if you have a, a complete world government who guarantees rights to everyone, then if someone is excluded from this world government, they have nowhere else to go. They're inhuman. They don't have a society, a community to belong to. And I think this is a similar danger that you have towards universal human rights. That is, if you try to encompass too many people, you have this Tower of Babel situation where it, it's just going to tumble down. Would you not precisely say that it is because we don't want the alienation that you raise as a problem of universal human rights, that we do have the uh, universal human rights? Because if we have more of institutional human rights, then we see people where people can be led off. But, but I think what you might be equivocating here is the idea of a global a human rights and a universal human rights. A global human rights would definitely allow for people to be left out. But rather, a universal human rights, it appears to me by definition, to include literally everyone such that there cannot be a problem of um, some people being left out of the equation. Well, I mean, unless you treat someone as inhuman. So mm -hmm. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you have universal human rights, the problem is there are some people who are not deserving of rights, or even, even some people that a lot of people wish to exclude him from certain rights. We, can, we don't have to list out names, but you can probably think about some figures. Uh, and what happens here is then if we have the idea of universal human rights and there are some people we think that don't deserve these rights, we, we, we would have to treat them as inhuman. And I don't think this is the best way to go about things. And of course, universal sounds pretty uh, in, in the abstract. But I think in practice, this is sort of my a more cynical Marxist <laughs> critique coming in. Uh, all, everything universal is is always excluding something that is particular, which obstructs the universal. And I think one can say the same thing as in human rights. We can just look at our, the current political situation. We got North Korea with <laughs> all those people living in such dire situations. And we talk about universal human rights again and again and again, but we never care about North Korea. Why? I think partly it's because it's universal in itself. It's already excluding some particular, that is in this case, North Korea, maybe because of some political situation, maybe because it's just too far from the West. So pe people shouldn't care about it. Or maybe it's just because people haven't seen enough about it because the, the press isn't covering it. Uh, for all these hosts of reasons, one has excluded a band of people from this idea of universal human rights. And my claim is if one is really to believe in universal human rights, then those people would have to be treated as inhuman in order for one to have a clean conscience. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen if one is to make this concept of universal human rights. What I think then is, I think that you make perhaps a leap too far when you say, well, let's go from the universal and then you, in order to stop uh, a certain criminal or someone to derive some of their rights, then the natural response is to say, well, thus make them inhuman. But rather, I think that perhaps your conception of what, what encompasses of those universal human rights is perhaps maybe a bit too broad in the sense that you say, well, yes, they might, they might need these certain acts, they might deserve these certain rights, but 
But perhaps the, the correct solution here is not to throw away the idea of universal human rights, but rather accept perhaps uh, universal human rights, but a very limited universal human rights. And it's perhaps this acceptance, which is instead the correct uh, response to the problem. You know, I think I might take your, your critique to heart. I think it may be true that there's a certain universalism that can take out of, uh, can take us above our provisional, provincialism. And this universalism, as you said, should be separated from a certain globalism, a globalism as in there's a global order that everyone is encompassed in and is within this global order and we have rights. Instead, one should strive towards a universal. And I think that's where I didn't, I, I fell short just then that somehow encompasses every single person and treats them qua person. And it is in this sense, in, in almost a Christian uh, Christian sense, that one can have a universal human rights that does not run, run the difficulty or the risk of excluding people. It's a, and I think if, if one is really, one really wishes to achieve that, then why cannot just talk about universal human rights as this empty rhetoric, but one, one really has to take it to heart and really investigate the concept and really understand why exactly does these universal human rights exist? What What, what is its groundings? And maybe in that way, then, then one can have a legitimate concept of universal human rights as beyond what we're talking about here. But let me just go, go, go on a bit and talk about some of my difficulties about some of the current rights that's talked about, talked about, like rights to, I don't know, our food or something like this, or rights to even education. What happens is, again, the concept is extremely muddled because you have, there's a pos in terms of rights, there's positive rights and negative rights. Negative rights are rights to not have other people obstruct me. Let's say rights to education, I have a right to education means that uh, other people shouldn't stop me from getting educated if I wish to do so. But then there's also a positive right uh, to, edu to education, which means that if I wish to have an education, other people has a duty, a complete duty to help me uh, to get educated. And the problem is that when, when one sees lists of rights inside the, the UN document, document, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, what one sees is they've completely modeled this distinction. And you have this, you, you have positive rights and negative rights not distinguished from each other. So if it, if it is true that everyone has a right to complete education, then it can either mean that we shouldn't stop other people from getting educated. And that's, that's, that statement is just trivial. Or it can mean that I have a complete duty to help everyone uh, who is not educated right now to, to get educated. And in this sense, I think the rights is again saying too much. And th that's probably my problem, problem again about this talk about human rights. Uh, they just got their concepts completely muddled and they, they themselves don't really know what they're talking about. Or we ourselves don't know what we are talking about when we're talking about, about human rights. And if we don't know what we're talking about, we're not gonna think straight and act rightly I think that's a very interesting classification, but but perhaps we're talking so much about what are human rights, and perhaps the question then should be, well, what necessarily is human rights, and 
or what necessarily is a, being a human or how does being a human constitute or where necessarily did our idea of human rights originate from and how did it relate how did it relate with our kind of perhaps our our nature of being human do we get human rights qua being human or or do we get our rights because of how we like to view ourselves i think we have our rights qua being human but it's not human in this biological way of uh, organisms that excrete, that uh, consume, and that labor, etc. But in, I think, more a moral way, and here I'm going to take a Kantian route, that it's because we have the capacity for moral action and even the capacity for freedom that we should be treated as ends rather than means. And it is this capacity for freedom and morality, which makes us ends rather than means, that constitute our human rights, but also our duty to, duty to follow our duties towards others, to strive to be as moral as possible in order to earn our right to our own rights or our right to happiness as such. That's a very interesting distinction. Now, now perhaps we can move a bit further because I, well, I do think that this discussion about human rights is very interesting. I think we've covered quite a lot of basis, and as I and as we've established in the first place, it does seem pretty. It is quite a, I wouldn't say trivial, but a bit boring topic when you look at it purely from a sociological one. But let's move a bit beyond this kind of theoretical discussion about rights, but into maybe more social, uh, a practical discussion about rights. What do you think is is the role of human rights and how do you think it has been used by modern society to further their discourse? At least when you're, when we go on to Instagram, when we go online, we always see these discussions about, I have this right. I have this right. These people are disrespecting this. These people are disrespecting that. What exactly does that kind of position of rights come from? Frankly, I'm not entirely sure. I'm good at the theoretical basis, but if you ask me to come down to earth and try to give you a complete sociological critique, of all the ways that people are using rights. I don't think I'm entirely sure, partly because that I have, <laughs> I've been so appalled by social media that I have basically removed myself from it, which means that I, I, I can't observe all the behavior of how people misuse the idea of human rights. But I think there's, there's one sense in which it is very damaging. It's, as you said, the idea that uh, you're violating my rights. I have this right, I have that right. And you, it, it's sacrosanct, no one can, no one can violate certain rights of mine. If they do, it is their fault. When, when one only focuses on rights, what happens is there's a void inside what one should do, void inside duty. So this is what the, the popular distinction between positive and negative freedom comes from. Negative freedom is my right for other people to not, not do anything to harm me, to push me around. And that's perfectly fine. But by only focusing on this part of my negative freedom, which is my rights to this, my rights to that, and uh, putting all our effort on, on how you violated violated my negative freedom, we we don't think enough about positive freedom, or about how we sh what we should strive towards, what is the best human life that we should live, what exact or what exactly is a human being, and what is our point. What is the point of our existence? What's the meaning of our life? And how can we further those meaning and to further 
the the value of my life to to make the most of what I am here. And when, when this is lacking, because we're focusing too much on human rights, as you said, uh, you're violating my right, you're violating uh, my right, or, or that right, his right, her right, then we're living this void of duties. And I think it leaves one directionless and leaves one extremely empty. I, I, I want to hear your thoughts, because I think you, you, you have more sociological observations than me in, in this. And I, I need to go and do something. I'll listen to you though. Indeed, I think that um, what Warren's uh, discussing is very interesting because it does seem to suggest that rights is becoming a bit of itself a bit of a tool. And I think that that is something which is quite unfortunate when I look at society because, because I think rights are something which is very holy, something which is very, and holy is the word which is used generally taken out of context in a very extreme way. But, but rather, I think that um, when we're talking about human rights, it's this kind of concept which is very sacred in some degree. We hold it at the heart of human existence. But unfortunately, I feel that it's been taken greatly out of context and greatly out of this kind of structure in which it, it, it is in, in the sense that it's become almost a deus ex machina of, of, of society, perhaps, in the sense that as long as you fulfill a certain set of rights, or as long as I claim a certain set of rights, I can now justify any possible action. And of course, this ties to our discussion, or second part of this discussion about social activism. But, but I think that this is essentially one of the things I find very disturbing about society is that the moment anything happens, the first thing people claim about is rights, rights, rights. But well, by using it so much, it, it, it as you say, trivialize, trivializes it and makes makes them meaningless because if something is used too many times philosophically or or um or in practice, it I think it loses its purpose significantly. Yeah. I think it's it's the same thing as when people <laughs> call others fascists or communists too much. Right? It you end up losing the distinction, and this is, I think, mean, part of what it means to to try to think clearly or to try to reason. That is to make conceptual distinctions and not to uh, put everything inside un under the same concept. And when this happens, as as you see that we observe in terms of this discourse on rights then the concept becomes meaningless and its previous meaning of what is previously sacred, what is what previously was important about this concept, what this why this con why we needed this concept before is completely lost and this concept becomes superfluous and even harmful and you're completely right. And maybe the proposal would be that only only poets can save us. Because it is poets who to retrieve the original meaning of language and, and put it to great effect. Now, now I think that that's definitely true, but I want to push you a bit further, at least inquiry a bit further, because when we, you when you first talked about the relationship of these rights with society, you raised this idea of meaning, this this lack of meaning, this search of meaning, but the loss of the meaning through the appeal to the rights. Well, it does seem to suggest that this usage of human rights then becomes very laden with existentialist theory and and of course, the, uh, there is the common Sartrean theory, which I think you hate a lot. But there is this idea that if God does not exist, then all things are permissible. Do you think that this perhaps could have been or could be one of the reasons why that concept of rights has been violated so significantly, precisely because it has lost its meaning through this God, the lack of this God concept or this detachment, this alienation from this original kind of existential solution found in uh, religion and it's thereby lost through uh Sartre. I'm not exactly sure about the first part of your question, 
But I think I can say something about the the problem with rights in relation to software. I don't think I can say anything super interesting about the relation to to the death of God, as Nietzsche puts it. But in terms of the talk of, of rights in relation to software, what happens is because one can completely remake oneself in Sartre's scheme, it's an idea of I can do whatever I want and other people shouldn't interfere with me. And what this is, I think, is a complete focus on rights of what I can do for myself and why other people sh shouldn't stop me from doing certain things to the the concept of duty saying what I should do, what I have to do as a human being uh, for myself, my, my obligation even to myself or my obligation to other people. And what happens, I think you're right, inside Sartre's existentialist scheme, there's a certain divorce between responsibility and duty. And it's, it's an extremely strange thing for Sartre. You ha you're responsible for everything you do precisely because you have ultimate freedom. And to devoid yourself of responsibility is to live in bad faith. However, he, Sartre also severed responsibility from duty. For, I don't think for him that there's much duty for anything. It, the only duty perhaps for him is to sort of maximize uh, the the things that I can do, to maximize the, the range of possibilities that, that I try out. And don't think that's a not a correct, but that's not a necessarily meaningful way to live. To just try out all the options rather than really assume on one and to take responsibility at, for it and to take it as one's duty. And I think that you touched on a very interesting point and maybe I could develop it a bit further, at least tie it back to our first discussion about rights in the sense that rights does seem to be a response or a nature as a result of this schema. There's a schema going on in um, in our discourse about rights. And it's only when you uncover this schema, this, this kind of interrelationship between different people where you find what the rights actually are. Now, now I'll, I'll like to push it maybe a bit further and in the sense that we could perhaps move a bit towards our discussion about social activism. And when we're talking about social activism, I think that one of the most interesting things we actually look from a, maybe a sociological, but of course, nevertheless, a philosophical one is, is that people oftentimes they appeal to these kind of concepts, they appeal to these ideas. And I'm just wondering what necessarily, what do you think is a cause of this? Do you think that the social activism is a cause because they desire what they argue for? Or do you think there's kind of this idea that I'm arguing for X, but in reality, I'm arguing for Y? Or there, do you think there is something beneath the, the fundamental theory, which is perhaps the true reason for their beliefs or their actions. I don't want to go, go, go so cynical and to start this entire like hermeneutic of suspicion of saying you're doing X, but in fact, you really mean Y, even though you yourself don't even know that you mean Y. But may, maybe there's some parts of it, maybe some part of social activism, the most destructive kind on the right or the left is this desire to destroy the world or in Nietzsche's term to like subjugate everyone down 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 into the last man uh, to achieve maximum power has behind these but I don't think that's that's interesting but as the dead horse has already been proverbially beaten too much here uh, there's I think the other point is more interesting of people who genuinely believe 
in 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 certain things that they should do. But the problem, I think, is just one one hasn't really thought clearly, clear enough about it. There's certainly a great degree of or want to do good, and that's laudable in itself. But you know, I've been thinking about the the Christian conception of God. God is omnipotent. God's omniscient, and God's uh, omnibenevolent. God's all loving, uh, all powerful, and I know everything. And what what this is saying is, pure love is not enough. You also have to be knowledgeable, and you also have have to have certain power. And what you see, perhaps, inside some form of social activism, are like fifteen year olds that go out into the street without really knowing what they're arguing for, is that they have this love, but they don't have necessarily uh, the thought process behind it, or haven't thought through what they're doing. So therefore, they, they haven't have the, the, the knowledge to complement their love in order to really make things better for the world. I'm not saying all social activism is bad. A lot of social activism is great, but just that one has to be extremely careful when one's being an activist. And in fact, the, the meaning of activism has been so, so diluted, just as rights, that it's originally is, is seen as a good word or a positive term because you've got examples such as Martin Luther King. But nowadays, after using it in more, more and more broader context of masking things that are not activism, uh, and again, it will be hard for, even, for one to even give a precise definition of what activism is or social activism is. Mm-hmm. And and perhaps to end this discussion, because I don't think this discussion, I think we've touched a lot on the different issues. And of course, if you want us to discuss these topics more than feel free to let us know. But I just want to kind of end this on, well, it's actually a very big question. What do you actually define as being a human being? Is Is being a human something which is, oh, you just have human DNA, you have the human genome, or is there something more about being a human to being a human? I think there's human as a biological species, so maybe Homo sapiens. Also, there's human being, quite human, as something that is beyond biology, some some being that possesses culture, or even somehow possesses something that is beyond the bounds of culture. They can be, as you said, universalized into something that that is less parochial than culture as such, and. This, I think, and I'm again going to give the Kantian answer, uh, is our ability to act morally, to act freely, to assume certain duties and obligations, and to act because of our duties and obligations. And this is partly what I think Aristotle meant when he said that we're political beings and also linguistic beings or beings who speak language. What he's saying is, for, for me at least, that we, we as language speaking beings can create the ontic powers and put it on us by y- using language to do certain tricks, so to speak, like promising. And by doing so, by having certain duties upon us, we become political beings because politics as in contrast to like modern politics as just the art of dwelling with other people and talking with each other and deliberating. It's based on this ability to create duties for ourselves. And 
it is this ability as language speaking beings and as political beings that we become moral beings to become beings who can act out of duty to do certain things and this also makes us beings who are free in at least the Kantian sense of acting of the will determining action solely out of duty and not out of any pathological incentives and it is this combination of language speaking political moral and free beings that we can call human compared to the biological human mm -hmm. i think that that is perhaps a very good place to end off this discussion i i'm not sure necessarily how we should go on from this point at least if we were to have a deep discussion because i think that this topic is quite limited i i chose it precisely because i knew that I, I didn't have the most absolutely most time today but i hope you've enjoyed this discussion if you enjoyed this discussion make sure to like and subscribe it means a lot to me it really helps this channel grow like always stay safe my friends see you soon thanks for watching and goodbye i'll see you in the next one